Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. When we ended last week, Denise Reitz had rejoined General Delaray, along with his Dorper companions, and had been regaled by the Prophet von Rensburg in late March 1901. The General was aware that the British drives were beginning to pay off. That was Lord Kitchener's plan to encircle the renegade commandos while conducting a scorched-earth policy where his notorious internment of women and children in the concentration camps continued apace. So, at the end of March 1901, Denise Reitz and the Delaray commando moved to Tafelkop from their natural lake called Rikpan in the western Transvaal. That came after Delaray had suffered a defeat in a skirmish with British troops and lost around 100 men. He knew that they were in an untenable position in the lowland and wanted to move into broken country, which meant escape was more likely when attacked. Denise explains, From Tafelkop after some days, we rode off with the mounted men, and we poor infantrymen and other camp followers were ordered to a place ten miles away, where there was better grazing for the trek oxen. Remember, many of the Boers were now without their horses. Eighteen months of war and disease meant a shortage was growing of horses, food, clothing, ammunition. This didn't stop Reitz from continuing his dream about being part of a large-scale invasion into the Cape Colony. It was this kind of wishful thinking that motivated him along with the core of the Boers. And yet here, far away from his loved ones, Denise Reitz was about to turn 18 years old. This old young man had been involved in nearly all major battles in Natal starting in October 1899. Dozens of skirmishes and near misses. Now he was in the Transvaal and looking forward to legally being able to consume alcohol as his birthday approached. Not that he had avoided the brandy and schnapps over the past year when offered. Still, he was clearly excited about his birthday in a most endearing way and wrote about it in his book Commando. That excitement was rapidly to turn to exasperation and even fear as they readied the feast early in the morning, a thick mist hanging over their camp because a British patrol lurked nearby. On the 3rd of April, the wagon crew and myself were busy preparing a dinner to celebrate my birthday with an ox tongue and a few odds and ends that we had managed to collect. Suddenly, there came a crash from a field gun, followed by the roar of a shell exploding close by, and almost immediately, some of Delaray's horsemen came riding out of the heavy mist that lay all over the country. Rates, of course, was on foot, helping inspan the oxen, then they were off, fleeing another English column. The thick mist which had hidden the English now worked to the Boers' advantage. Shells continued exploding around the men as they dragged the wagons away, but the mist meant the gunners were firing blind and the commando was moving quickly and quietly. Yet there was no time to lose. The sound of small arms fire could be heard behind where the Boer horsemen were trying to hold up their artillery and the English column. The Boers broke up into smaller groups and struck out in different routes, but all moving northwest. Each wagon striking out a course of its own without regard to the others, he wrote. Heavy rain began falling then, lowering the visibility still further, and the charmed life that Rates had led continued free for now. My companions and I got clean away, although at times the English horsemen splashed past so close to us that we could hear them shouting to each other for their bearings. The British were also a little late, as the bulk of General de la Rey's fighting men had already moved off. 
It was actually a small company of around 30 men from Delaray's main commander who'd returned to camp for a few days R&R that actually saved the Boers from imprisonment or worse. It was this small group that stumbled on the English force that was stalking rates and the convoy under cover of the mist and bought them all important few minutes. But for this we would have been taken by surprise, Rates admits, and I doubt if a single man would have escaped. How many times in the past year have we heard how the mobility and quick thinking of the Boer forces were their saving grace, not by being bogged down in a face-to-face fight, meant they lived to fight another day. Their use of scouts that were intimate with the lie of the land was also crucial. Combine this mobility with environmental knowledge and you have an army that can do its enemy much harm while remaining on the run. It's a lesson many modern armies continue to ignore. This incident was a close call, however. It was touch and go, says Rates. For the boom of the guns, the splutter of rifles through the fog, and the hallooing and galloping sounded very near. A large number of Boer wagons were lost, but most men escaped. Rates and his team continued to run alongside their wagon, keeping their oxen moving at a trot. Luckily for him, the wagon was light, carrying only their saddles and a few other goods. Those that were heavily laden were quickly overtaken by the English horsemen and seized. Towards evening of his birthday, Rates and his colleagues decided they'd put enough distance between themselves and the English, and they'd also reached broken ground to the north of Tafelkop. This was a place called Swatruchens, or Black Ridges, an area far west of the capital Pretoria that's characterized by black rocks and heavily wooded gorges. It may have been dark, and the British may have been nearby, but that didn't stop his friends from finally celebrating his 18th birthday. We built a large fire on the banks of a stream and resurrected the remains of my birthday dinner, which had come along in a leather bag, he writes. Afterwards, my companions stood in a circle around the blaze and solemnly sang hymns of thanksgiving for our escape. Then they slept. The next morning, the rest of the convoy that had escaped the English came crawling over the plain, also making for the safety of the hills. Rates and his companions yoked their oxen and joined the larger group, heading for a valley in the heart of the Swatruchens through rugged territory. Eventually, they came across the remnant of the original group and counted the survivors. A dozen wagons and close to a hundred men were missing. General de la Rey then rode up to assess the damage. It was not as bad as reported, so he gave orders for the convoy to continue moving 30 miles further west, where 200 horses from the Free State were waiting. Rates was excited. It was two months since he'd lost all his horses through sickness, and he'd experienced the worst side of being an infantryman. He'd suffered from blisters and infected feet. He'd walked hundreds of miles, and now was hoping to become mobile again. There was only one major problem. More than 300 men needed horses. Deciding who would get a beast was to be conducted by ballot. Here is another example of the strange form of democracy in the Boer ranks. They didn't say the eldest or the richest or those who'd fought the longest would receive horses. It was merely a kind of lottery. Many English columns were moving west at this time in continuance of a drive they were making, Rates says but we were able to trek along in comparative safety behind the line of their advance, and in due course reached our destination. There the sight of two hundred neighing and semi-wild horses filled the men with happiness. They were mostly unbroken mares, straining at their tethers, and brought to the meeting place by Free State Boers who were in charge of the remounts. 
As there were over 300 horseless men, the drawing of lots was followed with keen interest, says Rates. But he was to be disappointed. I drew a blank, he says ruefully. At least nine of his companions in the wagon party got a horse apiece, but this meant he would still have to walk. I was downcast at the result, although we were confronted by an assurance that further horses were expected. Still, it wasn't all doom and gloom. The infantrymen then had the pleasure of watching their colleagues try to break in the mares, with many thrown off and dragged about the felt, much to their amusement. Nearly 200 horses were bucking and squealing at the same time, their riders biting the dust in all directions, while we sat on the wagon rails, cheering them on. A little Boer rodeo for their entertainment. However, it didn't last too long, as the men were expert at breaking in horses, although it took some three days to eventually convince their mares to take a saddle and bridle. The newly mounted men then formed a large company of around 200, and Rates bade his friends who'd won the horse lottery goodbye. There were nine fewer infantrymen now walking alongside their wagon, and all wondered if the day would ever come that they would be able to ride into the Cape Colony and attack the British. They made their way back to the Swatruchens Valley from where they'd left, in good spirits, and halted near fresh water. A beautiful stream gushed from the rocks, says Rates, trying to sound upbeat. Yeah, we went into a permanent camp, and the place soon became a sort of base depot for Delaray's fighting commandos. Sick and wounded men were brought here from the battles to the south, and others would travel to the beautiful stream for a bit of rest and recuperation after being in the firing line. What is a bit amazing, really, is that the British were searching for this camp and never found it. Our numbers varied from 200 to over 400 at times, and so securely were we hidden that not once did the British troops come near us, although the columns were ranging far and near over the adjoining open country. But it was here, shortly, that Rates was to suffer a terrible injury that almost cost him his leg. But we'll return to that story next week. While our intrepid narrator had once again survived an attack and made it to his 18th birthday, Across the country, in the eastern Transvaal, the British were driving citizens into trains and concentration camps and setting fire to farmhouses. Kitchener, you see, was in a bit of a hurry. He wanted this long war to end as soon as possible and had dreamed up the drives to clear out the nests of what he regarded as bandits. In the eastern Transvaal, General French's cavalry and mounted infantry had recovered from some of the supply problems we've heard about in previous episodes. The weather had improved. It had lost much of its impetus as lack of supplies hampered mobility and the horses were weakened by the wet weather and lack of forage. The sodden terrain had been miserable for the English troops who laughingly referred to the weather as somewhat like Scotland. Eventually though, pursuit and devastation continued all the way to the Zululand border. Some of the ablest burghers had used the delay to slip back north of the cordon and made it to the mountains. Others had travelled with their entire families and disappeared into the felt and inaccessible deep lowland bush where malaria and wild animals proliferated. General French admitted that the drives were petering out by the first week of April, and the officers were aware that Louis Boerta was somewhere to the north. They were more interested in finding him than chasing Boer ghosts through the high felt and low felt. Lord Kitchener was totting up the numbers back at his HQ and was fairly happy with the stats. On paper, things looked good since the start of the drives in the last two weeks. 
400 Boers out of action by death or wounds, 1,000 captured, thousands of Moors captured too, hundreds of wagons seized, hundreds of thousands of rounds of ammunition, 8,000 horses and mules, and so many cattle and sheep that many escaped just because of the sheer volume of these animals. Thousands of families interred in camps, along with black workers. How could the Boers continue to fight, he thought. In reality, the reduction of Boer fighting strength was largely insignificant because the surrenders were mostly old men or boys, or those who'd given up the struggle. The Moorses were also useless to the Boers, as they'd run out of ammunition anyway and were now using British weapons, particularly the Lee Metford rifle. They were doing what all rebel troops do when they lose their main weapons and logistics. They begin using enemy weapons. And the loss of so many wagons was also hardly significant. Even Christian de Vett had stopped using wagons months before and decided to live off the land. He didn't rely on flour carried on wagons. He ate bush food. So General French realised that 21,000 men in the eastern Transvaal had been slogging through the high plains of South Africa for 10 weeks and actually had not achieved what they'd been ordered to do to destroy the Boer commandos. Lord Kitchener, though, was not going to give up. That wasn't in his character. Despite French's misgivings, Kitchener had set in motion another drive, as I explained last week. He had also drawn a line east to west along the Michalisberg mountain range and was trying to clear Transvaal and parts of the Free State south of this line. Much of this area at the time was unmapped, with large words unsurveyed in black ink. Worse, most of the railway line north of Pretoria to Petersburg was still in the hands of the Boers, while the town itself was in Boer control. There they ran printing presses and flour mills, as well as concentrated their supplies. This bushveld was considered unhealthy by the English, with thousands of square miles of fertile valleys unscourged by war, a fruitful and restful region for the commandos such as Ben Fulun. The acting president Skalkberger was in the mountains west of Leidenburg on a farm called Parteplatz, also in this region. From this remote area, he conducted the affairs of government across a countryside that we would now call idyllic. Mountains, wild bush, perennial streams, a winter that was not as freezing cold as further south and in the highveld, dotted with giant baobab trees, some 100 feet in circumference, where giraffes, lions, buffalo, nyala, kudu roamed along with rhino. These animals had already disappeared from the more settled regions to the south, but they were to be found everywhere here. Burger's government continued to issue paper money, maintained a postal service to Petersburg, appointed magistrates and sent messages to commandos all over the Transvaal. While they continued to function, the Boers believed their government was alive and fighting the British and they weren't merely a bunch of bandits hiding in the bush. Von Clausewitz would have noted that politics continued to function and leaders were based in a single place. They were not directing the war but were certainly symbolic in the continuing war. This war was politics by other means and methods. Lord Kitchener knew this, and he wanted Ben Fulun's commanders dispatched quickly. So, on the 26th of March, Plumer's large column moved out of Pretoria in great secrecy. Riding hard, the thousands of men in this drive were on a singular mission, to move swiftly and directly towards Petersburg in order to crush the town that had become a symbol of Boer resistance in the north of South Africa. As we'll hear in the next fortnight, Plumer's force descended on the town by mid-April 1901 and then began its scorched-earth drive, which was to trap Fulun between the Sikakuniland black chiefs 
who'd fought many wars against the Boers and were regarded as ferocious and hostile, and a general who had just arrived from India with the memorable name of General Sir Bindon Blood. I'll provide more details about this colourful character in later podcasts, but just to whet your appetite, he was a Scot and related to Colonel Thomas Blood, who tried to steal the crown jewels in 1671. General Binden Blood had a great deal of experience in Africa, building bridges and pontoons for the British expansion in Zululand in the 1860s, then fighting the Zulus in the infamous campaign of 1879. Eventually, he ended up in India and was then drafted back to Africa to fight the Boers in early 1901. With his fine head of silver-white hair and a moustache to match, he was easy to spot in a crowd. But more about General Blood, Ben Fulun and the Sikukuniland warriors later this month. So we'll end for this week. Please remember to rate the podcast on iTunes and you can send me a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham. Thanks for the many great comments and ideas I continue to receive and please take a look at our website abwarpodcast.com. Until next week, goodbye. Een zonder gedaan langs die mooie rivierse val, het zee voor oorlogsdagen bleef. O, breng mij terug naar die Oudransval, daar waar mijn Sarie woont, daar onder een die mil is